I'm Cassie Thornton, producer of Clusterfuck Woodstock 99. Uh, my name is Jamie Crawford. I'm a Brit living in New York and I'm the director of Clusterfuck Woodstock 99. My name's Tim Wardle. I'm one of the executive producers on Clusterfuck Woodstock 99. Woodstock 99. It was going to be the biggest party on the planet. But that's not what any of us remember it for. What the hell happened? It really felt like it was flower power and coming together in harmony. I've never seen this many people. It was peace and love and music. That was it. Put some hands up in the air. It felt like a crowd that could turn at any time. It was like this unleashing. All this energy. There was no control. The environment was just very male ego. I started seeing large groups of dudes surrounding women. There was a lack of respect. Given the climate of the guys there, I'm not surprised by it. Hey guys, back, give us some room. You're getting scary here. What sort of setup do you have for accountability? How many security guards do you have on site? They were glossing over all of that. Big fat ripoff. They're all about making money off us, and we're pissed. But the show was going to go on. I think we need to see a whole hell of a lot more! When you see it with your own eyes, it's just 10 times more shocking. Once you become part of a herd, you become like animals. Things are just getting out of control. And all of these people were acting like animals. We got fires everywhere, look at this. Kerosene, match, boom. This is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, an Austin and London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. This week it is my pleasure to welcome Cassie Thornton, Jamie Crawford, and Tim Wardle, the acclaimed filmmakers behind the Netflix docuseries Clusterfuck, Woodstock 99. Woodstock 99 was supposed to be a millennium-defining celebration of peace, love, and great music. Instead, the festival degenerated into an epic clusterfuck of fires, riots, and destruction. Utilizing rare insider footage and eyewitness interviews with an impressive list of festival staffers, performers, and attendees, this docuseries goes behind the scenes to reveal the egos, greed, and music that fueled three days of utter chaos. Stay tuned as we talk with the filmmakers about 1990s nostalgia, the rock festival that went wrong, and why they thought there should be another documentary about Woodstock 99. Cassie, Jamie, and Tim, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you, Cassie? Things are great with me. Thank you so much for having us on today. Yes, and uh, Jamie? Uh, equally, I'm, I'm a few miles from Cassie, and I'm over in Brooklyn, and it is very hot, but all good. Okay. And Tim, you're on this side of the pond, I think. I am. I'm in London. Thankfully, it's a bit less hot than it's been recently. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Okay, so we can tick off the weather discussion. We've had that. Uh, so, But thank you so much again. I Just to uh, remind our listeners and viewers that we are talking about 
Clusterfuck, Woodstock 99, releasing on August 3rd on Netflix. So congratulations on bringing three days of anarchy and rage so vividly to our screens. Uh, so well done. Um, I've had the pr- pleasure of seeing the uh, ahead of time. Uh, got the screener, but uh, I know our uh, listeners and viewers will, will enjoy this once they uh, get a chance. But uh, with that in mind, since... Uh, most our listeners uh, will have not seen this yet. Uh, Jamie, maybe you can tell us what uh, Clusterfuck Woodstock 99 is all about, or give us a bit of a synopsis. Um, I would say it is a nostalgic roller coaster um, that looks back at the, the 30th anniversary festival of Woodstock, uh, a name that's kind of synonymous with music festivals, um, to examine and unpick. Um, how it all went wrong. It, it set out to be three days of peace, love, and music and ended up in fires, chaos, and looting. Yes. Um, I think, uh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, as you say, uh, I mean, I think the, the film captures that brilliantly. I mean, maybe we can d- delve in a little bit more. I mean, probably a lot of our listeners are young enough or so young that maybe they're not even really that much aware of the original Woodstock. Tim, what was the... What was the original intent of Woodstock 99? We were trying to recapture something from from 1969, or weren't they, the organizers were? I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, Woodstock 69, the iconic definitive music festival, um, 30 year anniversary, they, they'd attempted to do a, a sort of revival of the festival in 94, which had been a partial success. They'd had a lot of rain um, a lot of people had got into the festival for free and they hadn't made any money. They'd lost money, I think, if anything, on, on it. Mm. So um, 99, they were trying to do this end of the millennial celebration uh, and had big plans for it, and it went horribly wrong. Yeah. And, and Cassie, and so in reality, what was, what was happening leading up to this? I mean, as you say, it was supposed to be all about peace and love and music and... Yet, um, it isn't just those three days. It was what was leading up to those three days that kind of led to those three days. What what was what was happening with the organizers of of this uh, event? Well, I would say there's a few things. I mean, on a more like meta macro level, um, the yeah. original Woodstock was supposed to be about peace and love, and there was an anti-Vietnam War movement that was going on. And I don't think that the intention was actually for it to be what it was. I mean, you know, there was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of people of people were actually there. Um, and so it was this lightning in a bottle moment in time in which everyone came together to take care of themselves and to stand up against the government. So flash forward to 1999, um, they were re- trying to recapture that feeling, but in fact, society had changed greatly. Um, and the tone of the music and the artists, which we can get into, um, had changed greatly mm. from the original Woodstock. Um, so to answer your question, then on a, a little bit more of a micro level, um, there was a panoply of um, factors that eventually led to three days of disaster in the actual planning of Woodstock that I think all started with sort of a uh, idealistic view of what it could be in 1999. 
Yeah, so I mean, but the thing that struck me because you've got you got the original one of the original organizers of Woodstock '69, Robert Lang, and others. Um, but the number of times, I mean, I don't. I, to be fair, I don't think he says this in the doc, but you have others. Um, they, you know, they they acknowledge all this, but then they say, "But it had to make a profit." They keep saying it had to make a profit, which uh, I don't think that was the uh, the mantra of the first one, was it? I think they were trying to combine. I mean, I think they were trying to combine the nostalgia and sort of the um, the vibe of the first one with a kind of late '90s profit-driven agenda, and the yeah. two of those just don't fit together particularly well. And 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 the genesis of a lot of the problems that that, that developed during the the festival come from that. I mean, you know, it's not unreasonable for them to expect to make a bit of money on a on a music festival. Well, Most yeah. music festivals are, are profit-making. Uh, organizations but the way they went about it and some of the decisions they made for example the venue that they chose um, in pursuit of profits proved to be mistakes yeah I mean it is just a litany here I mean I guess uh, um, I think it's I think it's a misconception that people assumed that, that Woodstock 69 was not about making money because the original thinking about Woodstock 69 was that they were going to put on a music festival that would help them fund the building of a music studio in Woodstock. And, the, and yeah, they sold a whole load of tickets before it began, but what happened is the logistics got out of control. They didn't get around to building a fence and you know half a million people turned up. Uh, but it, in, at its heart, there was money put behind it, invested in Woodstock 69 with the idea that they would get their money back, uh, which they... I mean, I think that you raise a very good point, Jamie. I mean, there is this such a myth, myth, myth mythology, some of it all accurate, but it's such a mythology around Woodstock 69 that it just overhangs everything else, doesn't it? I, I think so. And I think also it, it, it's probably to, to a great degree, they were kind of the victims of their own success in that sense, because the film of Woodstock 69 became right. this kind of mythological utopian event that in reality is incredibly difficult to realize yeah and so but <clears throat> all that said i mean um you know people should watch the f the film you you've uh you've 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 you documented it extreme extremely well but it, it doesn't i mean it starts off fairly promising it doesn't necessarily have to to fall into uh into what happens i mean you've got you got this incredible, incredible light lineups, uh, the bands that they've been picked. But I think you're already alluding to um, things have changed in 30 years in terms of society and what, not even just what's popular, because maybe it's even more eclectic than it had been. But there is a certain um, certain style of music that lends itself to. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm being. I'm not. I actually don't necessarily buy into that. I mean, in the sense that. There was an, a unique, maybe they didn't quite have a, a feel for the kind of the unique combination of bands they brought to, to the fore. Is that, is that a fair enough as, uh, assessment? I think, that's, I think that's right. I mean, I think the bands that they booked were the biggest bands in the world at the time, or certainly the biggest bands in the US. And those bands tended to attract a particular type of audience, which was, you know, young white men, um, college age, uh, and the music was very aggressive. And so when you book those bands, I'm not sure they fully thought through what the demographics of the audience were going to be and what the just prevailing atmosphere of the festival was, was going to be like. And I think they were somewhat 
out out of touch the organizers who were you know old, older by this point um mm -hmm. they, they were out of touch with what that music was they just saw biggest bands in the world we'll, we'll book them because we're woodstock and they went out and got them right. they didn't think through they didn't know enough about the music or the bands i i don't think you can necessarily blame the bands for what happened exactly but but uh, there was certainly the, the the fans of those bands came from a certain demographic and it and it just skewed the the makeup of people at the festival yeah i mean it's I, there's go ahead go ahead cassie oh i was just going to say um but as tim was saying i don't think you can blame the bands alone which is something that's really interesting about this because yes you bring certain bands you bring a certain type of audience but there were other concerts going on at that time with those bands there was you know, small, the smaller scale shows that would happen right. with those bands in the course of one evening. Um, and you wouldn't hear about necessarily this type of mass uh, rioting and destruction at those shows. And those were, shows were happening all the time. So I think that the most interesting thing that, that we came across was analyzing, you know, what were all of those building blocks put together that sort of unraveled this utopian fantasy. Yeah. I mean, I'm of a, I mean, there's a very much a general, I mean, so this film touches on a lot of different things, but there's very much a generational element, isn't, isn't there to this that you tap into? You've got the, for lack of a better way of putting it, you've got your boomers who are the organizers and they're organizing a concert for their children who, since I now realize a lot of them were teenagers at the time, they're kind of older millennials. Uh, and then you've got a band full of Gen Xers like me, uh, you know, and it's a very, <laughs> it is an interesting dynamic going on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's a bit, that's a bit cliche because I mean, Willie Nelson was there. There were like, there were all kinds of different styles of music there, but it was like, like you said, this combination of the timing, um, drug fueled, everything that, you know, this, this, uh, perfect storm, if you will, of, of events and things that, that led to, to what happened. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, it, I think the, the perfect storm is, is, a is an very accurate way to describe it. There is no one single element that brought down Woodstock 99. There is uh, any number of them. Yeah. Um, okay, so it, it um, again, we, I mean, it's, it's an incredible, so for people who are interested, I mean, it, you know, we've, we've, we've already mentioned a few bands. We've got, we've got Corn, we've got Limp Bizkit. Uh, you know, I thought it was an interesting, I don't know if, if, if it's, if it's the two Brits on the call, uh, but, you know, you had this whole scene on the fr first night where, Bush kind of helps settle things down, you know, Gavin Rossdale, because uh, you're worried about what's going to happen after that incredible um, uh, performance by Korn. Um, then you got the next day, we've got, uh, we've got Fatboy Slim in there. We've got uh, all these incredible bands. Wycliffe John was in there. I mean, it was amazing, these, these lineups. What's that? Good Rock in there on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's just, it is, uh, if, if I guess if you looked at the charts or not even the charts, who were the biggest draws in 99, they're all there. And, yeah, and you know, they've interviewing Michael Lang. He told us that he was very specifically sort of setting out to kind of hand over the Woodstock baton. And therefore um, he and John Cher worked to organize a musical lineup, which was reflective of the music of that generation, not, um, the previous Woodstocks, if you look at Woodstock 94, it was much more of a crossover. Mm. They tried yeah. to design a football which would appeal both to the people who'd gone to the original mm. and to come with their kids. Hence, like Joe Cocker was there and Bob Dylan right. played and 
Yeah. And there's, there's much more even mix of music, whereas 99, there's only kind of a very small smattering of the original Woodstock flavor through the likes of Willie Nelson. Kind of a veneer, yeah. but uh, yeah, go ahead, Cassie. I was just going to say also, um, yes, those were the biggest bands of the day, but they were actually the biggest bands of the day that would bring their audiences to the middle of right. New York. Yeah, for three right. days, because yeah. um, actually some of the other biggest bands of the day, um, which we touched upon, of course, you know, the Backstreet Boys, in sync. Right. we had Britney Spears, you know, doing her thing yeah. at the time. And Millennium Tour of the Backstreet Boys was one of the, the biggest selling and highest selling um, shows of that year. Um, so, you know, I think that also was... Uh, part of the thinking it wasn't just the biggest bands yeah. of the day it was the biggest bands that were going to bring in the most people yeah. to buy overpriced tickets yeah. but you would have had a ride on on friday if you'd had a backstreet boys show up and you wouldn't have waited till sat sunday to, to kick off <laughs> i mean just just what i remember of of those days um but as you say it is so i mean what what I will say is it's really, you know, show don't tell is what they say about film, isn't it? Uh, so we're not going to try to describe these scenes. Uh, people just need to see the, the this incredible footage that you guys have. Um, but it is sort of, it just degenerates into this, um, I don't know, Apocalypse Now meets Lord of the Flies sort of uh, environment. And um, I think, hence the title, literally becomes a, a clusterfuck, doesn't it? I think that, that, I mean, that was one of the words that one of our interviewees used, and um, it is in in very few letters in one word is a good summation of where things ended up. I think I think even people with the most um, positive take on uh, mm. the events in those three days would concede that some elements were indeed a, a, a spectacular clusterfuck. Yeah. I mean, we've... Um... It reminds me, we had a, um, you may have, we had a doc called Class Action Park on uh, a while back. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was all, it's kind of the same thing. 90s nostalgia, but horrible things that went wrong at a at an amusement park in New Jersey, but uh, at the time. And, you know, I, I remember the guy who, uh, one of the um, producers behind it, I said, you know, it, it, all you can do, there's this nervous laughter that comes with describing these sort of events and I felt a little bit bad about it and he said well but it's no it's only natural because that's your that's the human reaction when you don't know what else to say or how to react to something the natural what we all tend to do is kind of um and I think your a lot of your interviewees do this don't they they they, they just kind of like put their heads in their hands and just can't um you know what else can you say about what what happened this 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 that led to these all all you know to these events. I yeah, I think also, so. Sorry, go Tim. No, no, I was just gonna say, I think there's an element of sort of schadenfreude as well of watching these kind of things. Like it's, it's you know, there's something fascinating about watching uh, uh, people who have a, a very clear plan of like what they want to do and then and, and, and making money and, and everything we've discussed and then watching that kind of fall apart in a slow motion train wreck. There's something just, it's kind of hard to take your eyes off it. Um, and there's something, there's a sort of perverse entertainment that can be taken from watching the best laid plans kind of fall apart. Yeah. And I think as you've already kind of mentioned, I mean, and Cassie, I mean, is for all that, and there's, oddly enough, there is a bit of a celebration of, of youth culture and that comes in at the end with, 
how people said, yeah, they would go again or what they, their memories of it. There were many horrible, Cassie, there were many horrible things that, that happened there besides burning and mayhem. I mean, especially to, to young women. Absolutely. And I think um, it was really important to all of us to showcase that and to make sure that people understood that it wasn't just, you know, lighthearted elements that were going awry. Um, there were a lot of things that are much deeper than that that would impact people's lives for forevermore. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so I think and it's, I mean, to say there are scenes there that were just absolutely hellish, I don't think it's over you know, is, is exaggerating, but, um, um, actually maybe let's give our listeners a bit of a break as they mull this all over. Um, so we'll be right back with, uh, Jamie Crawford, Tim Wardle, and Cassie Thornton, the acclaimed filmmakers behind Clusterfuck Woodstock 99 releasing on Netflix on August 3rd. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Jamie Crawford, Tim Wardle, and Cassie Thornton. The acclaimed filmmakers behind Clusterfuck, Woodstock 99. It's releasing on Netflix on August 3rd. Um, now, for our listeners, if you're having a bit of a sense of deja vu, um, thinking, wait a minute, wasn't there another Woodstock 99 doc that came out? Uh, uh, Jamie, what, I mean, what made you think it was, you needed another film about Woodstock 99. I mean, I, I, I have enough interaction with people in documentary film. That's one of the first things they do. They Google it and say, oh, well, there's already been one made. Uh, well, maybe, maybe we'll pass on this one. Or what, what, was, what was going on with this? Well, I, think we probably, um, I think we probably mutually discovered that we were both covering the story at the same time because we were in production at the same time. But, um, but no, I think it's, you know, it, there's a great zeitgeist for the 90s. And I think it's, uh, I'm a huge fan of people covering the same story in different ways. There is no single narrative that, well, particularly with this, there is no single narrative that describes the events of Woodstock 99. And we, you know, we actively set out to approach it from a very different standpoint. I think they, the, the HBO doc, which we all saw, I think did a really great job of um, sort of, uh, drawing a, a, a kind of some cultural insight into that decade through the various sets that took place at the festival with a kind of bird's eye view on, on events. Mm. Um, and by contrast, you know, our, our golden rule really was that we only wanted to interview people who had been there on the ground and lived it and seen it. Um, and secondarily that we, we were interested in sort of pulling back the curtain on the production itself and um, talking to as many people who worked on the festival as possible to try and uncover in some sort of, in a, in a kind of uh, detective case, you know, what were the elements that, um, that brought this thing tumbling down and left it in a burning smoky mess. Okay. I think that's so, right. I think that's right. It's, it, you know, what, what differentiates our, our treatment of it is very much a kind of ground level immersive kind of retelling of events kind of play by play as, as they unfold um, and we, we we focus quite heavily on the young people who are working the festival who are kind of caught between the organizers and their somewhat grandiose ideas for the festival and the young people who have come to experience this festival and are having a hard time and and these guys kind of caught in between the junior or some of them not junior but very young festival staff 
it was kind of that it felt like um, the tension in their story it was was really central to what we wanted to tell about these guys trying to mediate between these two competing mm. demands. Okay, so I mean, and and to be honest, I haven't seen the other one. Uh, I'm not looking. We're not, I'm, so we're not even comparing it with that one, but it's just it, it is interesting, and as you say, it's uh, Jamie. It's kind of it's you, there's more than one different way of approaching or angle to a story. So how did this? I mean, yeah, so there's two hundred thousand people there. Yeah. yeah, well, at least yeah. And uh, um, so how did this get started? So unbeknownst to you, there's this other project going on, but somewhere there, uh, someone had the idea to make uh, a doc about Woodstock '99. Whose idea was that? So the, the origin of the project, Netflix actually brought it to Raw. They've been approached um, okay. by BBH, the advertising agency, who are trying to move into um, documentary mm. TV production and yeah. had, I think, an idea for a sort of um, anthology series, loads of different ideas. Um, right. One of the stories they were interested in was the story of Woodstock 99. And Netflix said, well, we need to pay you with some people who've got experience actually making documentaries and so yeah. that's where we came on board and it, we discovered as Jamie said through the through the course of production that there was another um, right. film being made at the same time so it was a, it was sort of slightly awkward and the, the pandemic was on at the same time and we were sort of interviewing the same people at, the, at yeah. different points but I think you know ultimately what we decided was that we weren't going to try and race them to production it meant it was more important to us to kind of take mm-hmm. our time and really craft and um, and work the stories and just make sure that the the series was as tight as it possibly could be rather than trying to get into a sort of crazy rush to get first out of the gate. Is that something that's happening more often that like someone like Netflix will then come to you, to a production company and say, we've got this idea instead of the other way around pitching ideas to Netflix or is this a bit... Yeah, it's, it's a two-way street. You know, it, it, sometimes yeah. we, we pick ideas. You know, I've worked for much smaller independent production companies that, than Raw and, and they're, you know, you, in that position, you're generally obviously much more pitching to them and, and trying to convince them to do your stuff. Whereas, you know, Raw have a track record with things like, I don't know, Tinder Swindler, Three Identical Strangers, Cats, um, mm. that they, you know, Netflix know that, you know, we're going to deliver a quality series. So we're sort of one of the first ports of call, I think, when they get an idea like this. Okay. And so, I mean, you're, so yeah, there's this other production going on and you said sometimes you're interviewing the same people, but uh, Cassie was, I mean, there were no challenges gaining access. It seems like everyone, most everyone involved was very willing to talk. They may have very different uh, memories of, of what, of the events, but all seem to be very willing to share freely with their view of, uh, of what led to all this. Well, that was one of the, the best things about working on a show like this is that people were actually very willing to talk about it um, for a multitude of different reasons. And actually we could only include a small fraction of the people that we spoke with during casting. And there were lots of people involved in that. Um, but there were so many poignant memories that people had, I mean, even, you know, from two decades ago where people would recount scenes with such vivid memory and recall that you thought, you know, it had happened last week. So um, I think that was one of the most fascinating parts of, of being involved in this is that people were, were always willing to share their perspective. And from there, we could get that full picture view and immersive view of what was really happening on the ground. Yeah. And then, um, as you said, you really, you focused on the people who were actually there. Uh, and one, I think, one of the elements of it that's really, I find, very, um, well, very poignant 
is uh, how did you find those concert goers and focus on these? These aren't like celebs, you know. They, uh, I mean, okay, you you had your choice of two hundred something thousand people to to track down, uh, and you could have picked them. But uh, I thought it was very. Uh, I liked the I liked the ones you you uh, focused on. I'm so glad that you asked about this because I loved finding and speaking with concert goers. Um, I probably spoke to dozens and dozens of concert goers. Um, And you actually found them through sort of like a chain of reaction, a chain of friends. You might've found one person who posted on the Woodstock 99 Facebook group and you spoke to that person. And then they were like, well, you really should talk to this person and you really should talk to that person. Um, And so actually a lot of people were discovered through referral, (laughs) if you will, um, because there were so many groups of friends we found that went to Woodstock and even within that friend group, they had totally different experiences. So actually um, Keith and Tom um, and Sarah were all friends from high school. Um, And there was even more of them involved uh, in Woodstock and had their own experiences and some with equally great stories. Yeah. I think what's amazing as well as as a Brit being over here was to discover how baked into our generation our generation's DNA, uh, Woodstock 99 is. I mean, our generation within within the US, like in, in the US, right. in the UK, you know, I was 20 time, 22 at the time of Woodstock 99. And and we had, we kind of had echoes of it over here, over there. But over here, like everyone I speak to knows about it. One of the colleagues I'm working with now is a production assistant on it, as I've just discovered. And then yeah. just as I was starting the project, I was talking to my neighbours downstairs on the stoop. And they go, what are you up to? And I was like, I'm getting into this crazy story about this music festival with something 99 they're like no way we were there oh my god <laughs> and then one day before I'm about to sit down to interview Ananda Lewis and the night before yeah, I was yeah. interview all of her MTV footage and in the MTV footage is a moment where one of the hosts is with a crowd of girls and he goes it's really hot out here you know what's what sunscreen are you wearing and he goes down this line of girls and then and then this young young uh, young woman says uh, I'm Patty from Ohio I've got 30 and I was like hang on a second that's Patty, my neighbor <laughs> It's just amazing. It's just amazing how you know everybody here knows about it or has a story to tell about it. It's in a way, you know, it's like our generation sixty nine because everyone has a story to tell about of that age has a story to tell about Woodstock sixty nine. Many of which are I never got there, but I wanted to. And it's similar how that echoes um, in in the in in our generation. I mean, so that's interesting because I think one one thought I had was I mean I'm. Might there be a few who may not want to admit being there because it could be under threat of uh, prosecution of some sort? But, uh, you know, um, did you find you were, you know, I wonder if, you know, everyone says, what, how many people were actually at Woodstock? And there are probably a million people who claim to have been there. Uh, is this one where 250,000 were at uh, Woodstock 99, but maybe only 150 admit to being there? I don't know. But, uh, but I guess not. I mean, it seems it, as you say, it's uh, hard baked in. No, it's, well, it's quite funny though. It is worth mentioning that. I mean, some of our contributors are, you know, lawyers and professional people these days, and that's yeah. one of the reasons that we went for um, first name only in in the uh, captions. <laughs> some of them insisted on that, and we just went with it across the board because it, it, it feels it's more intimate as well. But it was just funny because you know you look at all these people who were there, and you know, in the midst of all that craziness, and they're now grown ups with serious jobs and families right. and everything, and they were. You know, I, I, as Cassie said, I think people are broadly happy to talk about it, but they're also 
conscious that they have professional lives and you know responsibilities these days and and wanted that protected yeah i think the only people who didn't talk about it were the people whose jobs wouldn't have let them even though right. they wanted to remember correctly yeah that's interesting i think also actually, there is it actually in in contrast to woodstock 69 there is a very accurate tally of how many people were there right. because they actively sold tickets to it and there was a massive fence around the whole venue, meaning you couldn't get in if you didn't have a ticket. So they knew how many people in by how many tickets they sold. Well, I think somewhere in someone in your doc literally said it was like a refugee camp, and indeed, it's it's very much what it looked like. Yeah, I mean, there were a few few sort of holes in the fence. I think that people snuck yeah. through um, by the end, or perhaps snuck out of. Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good point. I mean, I, if my kids ever listened to this, they'd be surprised. Yeah, their old man has been in a mosh pit before and, you know, these things. <laughs> I, I have more memories of 94 than I would 99, but still, um, not with 250. No, 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 there been, no, there's nothing interesting about me. But, I mean, I think, um, uh, but 250,000 people in a mosh pit. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, maybe Jamie. What about that? So, how much the, the concert, so... There's some amazing footage looking out into the crowds. Well, not just some. I mean, it's, the dock is littered with it. But is this, uh, how much of it was archival? How much is stuff that you guys have exclusive access to? Um, in terms, and then um, what it was like for a director putting that all together. Because these, these are scenes that will never be replicated, I would imagine. I think that's uh, one, of, one of the great things about making a primarily archival-led uh, yeah. film is that it's this incredible treasure hunt, good material, yeah. right? I mean, particularly with the story, because this is pre-phones on your cameras. Right. This was an age when people, you know, as we discovered, as we started to talk to people, normally there was one person in a group who might have had a kind of clunky right. early day right. camcorder. And the, the great excitement about this was that although we had access to a lot of the official footage, you know, the festival coverage and the big wide shots and the booms and that kind of stuff, um, the, the really, really visceral, tangible stuff was the dusty cassettes in people's yeah. attics that we were, you know, through the grapevine, eventually able to, to turn up. And it's those that really like, put you on the ground in a, in a very sort of first person way. Um, that that you just simply can't recreate with with other stories, and we you know we had discussed using other kind of forms to tell the story. Obviously, a classic way of telling a retrospective story is to do some sort of dramatic reconstruction. But we mm. we got so we were sort of sucked in by this amazing wealth of archival material, and also because it's it's real, it it only lends further credibility to your to your storytelling because those are the actual events. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very good point. You've got some great, uh, uh, sh you know, handheld shots people made on their own and with the time yeah. date stamps that none of us could ever figure out how to get out of our, our, our <laughs> out of those tapes. They went wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, and, it, and that was purely just going onto the web and getting onto Facebook groups and tracking that kind of stuff down. I mean, I imagine some of the people you interviewed had had access to, you know, had... Yeah, one of the, well, it, was, it was always a great bonus if somebody comes with a with a really good story to tell and, and some way of showing it too. Yeah. And I think that was one of the joys of it as well is that through the archive, you know, one of the producers that we interviewed, she had very actively, um, she was a, a, a daughter of Woodstock '69ers who had photographed Woodstock '69. So when she is employed, Pilar Law, and when yeah, Michael Lang, yeah. she's employed to work on the festival, she sets out to actively document her experience on a camcorder. And the great thing is you get these, you know, you get these 
all this sort of fantastic footage of these 20 year old kids who are now sitting down in the interview chair as 40 something year olds um, looking back on their younger selves. Yeah. I, I have to say that the challenge of it as well is just the vast amount of archive. And I mean, at right. very point, it, the editors were almost crying, going, I just need more time to like look through all this, you know, despite mm. being a month and months and months. You know, every time we went back and like looked through, you'd find something else or that you missed or some other key great bit of footage, just scrolling through, looking for, I don't know, a shot of the sun going down, you'd find, I don't know, something else incredible. And so it was a constant, mm. it, it, the constant process of, of discovery, but also you had to sort of on one level accept there was just too much footage to watch every frame. We just had too much. So it was like, yeah. you had to accept that you were going to miss some shots that were probably out there somewhere. Uh, probably four, what, 400 hours-ish, something like that of, of material, somewhere around that figure you know when you add in all the stills as well i mean it was the most archive i've ever seen on a project i've worked on it was crazy and it and actually by you know by continuation of that the other big challenge is 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 through interview because in order to access you know in order to access really visceral moments Mm. those out of people's sensory memories you have to sit down for a long time and talk about it because as you start to talk about it and you probe with questions and more questions and more questions, it brings up these kind of memories and somebody suddenly goes, oh my God, yeah, I had this memory of this smell, you know, uh, and, yeah. and to, I think in, in one of the aims of this is you kind of want to be able to smell the venue, even though you're watching the doc. Um, and it takes a lot of hours and a lot of interviewees to get to that. So, but as, at the same time as having many hundreds of hours of archive, mm-hmm. we've got you know, probably a hundred of hours of, of interview to, to, try and p- to try and piece together this, this huge, um, sort of battlefield painting of, of what went on. Well, you certainly do that with the, uh, you know, leading up to the body surfing in the mud, you know, <laughs> that, uh, and now all the stuff that uh, was associated with that, the, uh, you know. I think that was one of the great things about it was that, that Cassie and the rest of the team you know, were able to find um, this, amaze this kind of the, the entire, the full gamut of interviewees in order mm-hmm. to offer up all of these different perspectives on the same moment. So when we cover Limp Biscuit on Saturday night, which we, you know, we go Friday, Saturday, Sunday through the episodes and that yeah. occupied the, the, the probably almost 20 minutes of, of episode two of the Saturday. Um, thanks to this amazing array of people and everyone is telling you their account of that same moment from a different, I'm in the mosh bit and I'm on the side of the stage and right, I'm playing the right. on the mixing desk. And, and I think that's where, that's where these stories really, really come to life yeah. and you're just, hopefully uh, watching it kind of swallowed up by the by the experience yeah i mean um um i mean one thing i was gonna ask i guess cassie i'll I'll direct it to you i mean um you've already but you've we've already heard sort of where the 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 um inspiration for the title came but uh how did you all settle on that as the title? Did you know what is netflix market research because i know and so i've heard filmmakers on before and we don't have Netflix on the call right now, but uh, they, uh, you know, they've said, "Oh, well, Netflix came back to us and said, no, this is the title you should use,'" and we ran with it. But how did that? Uh, just, did it just become obvious that this is what you should do? How how did that uh, work I, out? Cassie, do you, shall I answer this one? Just because I was, you know, I was going to say I'm going to pass this one to Tim. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but you should ask Cassie because she's uh, she, she's got a great knowledge of the, the in depth making of it. Um, uh, so the title. Uh, was one of the, there were a number of titles that were being considered uh, and it, it actually it came from 
BBH and Netflix, who had originally, you know, brought the project to Raw. So it wasn't a Raw-generated title. I think it's a provocative title, um, and I think it's an accurate one. And I think that, you know, Netflix and everyone looks for titles that will get people watching. And I think, you know, in this case, I don't feel it's salacious. It's ac it's accurate mm. to the to, to what went down there. You know, and I, yeah. I you can see. With other titles I've had in the past, like Don't Fuck With Cats, Cats which was the series that Raw made, you know, I think when that was first mooted as a title, and that was from Raw, that, that title, there was a lot of um, nervousness about how that would play, but actually, you know, it, was, it, it, it did really well, that series. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's an accurate title that will hopefully appeal to the widest possible audience. Well, I mean, it certainly grabs your attention. And as you say, if, if a title is supposed to... If we want to want it to, what you get is what you see written on the tin. Then I think it certainly <laughs> certainly does that. Um, I mean, in terms of this this film, I mean, it's a. I mean, I, I I can only imagine how, in many ways, how much fun this was to to work on for the last uh, few years. But um, what I mean, what what do you want the legacy of this film to be? I'll I'll direct this at all of you. I mean, when and you know. Uh, less about how did this happen because I think you do. We've discussed that and you document it. But what are the, you know what is um, what 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 do you want us to take away from this film uh, besides a little bit of '90s nostalgia, the the obvious the point that the '90s weren't just completely nostalgic. There was all kinds of things going on uh, back then. Uh, Cassie, do you want to maybe lead on that? Sure. I mean, I think it is the perfect fishbowl look at what was going on in society as told through a music festival. I think it was a little like the Truman Show, you know, how do we behave when we're being watched or how did we behave when we were being watched? Um, as well as how do we behave when we don't think anyone is watching? So I think that would be my, uh, hopefully my uh, takeaway. Yeah. Fellas, do you have anything to add on that? I think what's, what, what I really wanted to take away from it is, or what people take away from it is there's a whole generation of people who A, either didn't exist or were way too young to have been um, at an event which was pre-social media, pre-cell phones, pre-WhatsApp, mm. uh, Snapchat, TikTok, every moment of your life. Um, and it, and it, it's, uh, I think I'm really looking forward to seeing the reaction of a younger audience who look at this thing, uh, which was kind of like the wild west of cultural moments in the nineties and go, Oh my goodness. Um, and they will look at their teachers who were in their twenties back then in a very different way. <laughs> I think that's right. I think it's, it's, it was like, I almost see it as like an experiment in, in kind of anarchy. It's like, what happens if you grab a lot, put a large number of young people together in a place with not many rules um, and there are good things that happen, and there are very bad things that happen. And I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from it and, and that society has learned from, you know, from that kind of cultural moment and what was going on then. Um, so I think, although it's a, a cultural artifact and it sits in this kind of hermetically sealed weird period between, mm. I don't know, the birth of social media properly and, um, you know, the, I don't know, the, 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 the hippie paradise of Woodstock 69. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a lot that we can learn from it in terms of how our society is today and what has led us to the society we have today. And some, some of it, a lot of where we are now is a reaction against the kind of behaviour that we see at Woodstock. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you, and you do go ahead. Practical. You can see from a very practical perspective in terms of the, the way that music festivals are organized these days. Yeah. Um, you know, it'd be less than in how not to do things. Yeah, well, certainly. <laughs> if you don't want to know how not to run a music festival, watch this yeah. film. <laughs> but the, it's it's but watch it for more than that. Um, I think uh, I think it, you mentioned social media. I thought that was another point, good point that one of your uh, interviewees said that you know these days if there had been if you'd had Snapchat Snapchat or you know TikTok whatever people would have been complaining right from the beginning and it would have been gone viral and people would have said wait a minute there's something. In an odd way, people, you know, social media gets a lot of bad rap these days, but it seems that would have been an outlet. That's where some of the outlet for this would have been directed rather than being pent up and then just exploding on at the concert there. That was the that was the outlet of Fire Festival, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Good point. Um, well, so I think our time together is actually coming to an end. So thank you so so much. But before we before we uh, depart, um, you know, I think uh, it, what's next for the for the bunch of you all through Raw? What what have you got going on? You've got varied backgrounds. Some with have some scripted backgrounds. What what's uh, next? I mean, I know you're still focused on getting. Uh, well, it is going to be released, and and probably you're doing the uh, dog and pony show around that. But uh, uh, what what is uh, what's next uh, for you? you I think? am I. So I'm I'm an employee of Raw, the production company that made this. So I am working on various other things for Raw, both in scripted space and uh, have a feature documentary I'm executing about the origin story of women's boxing in the US in the 70s and 80s. Wow, that's that sounds really interesting. Uh, it's a story. It's a really good story. It's um, yeah, it's another one of these kind of un- untold histories. But it's it's a fascinating. It's not it's not the story you expect, is what I would say. There's a lot of twists and turns in it. Well, I definitely look forward to that because as I'm, I'm, I'm of an age when all of a sudden women's bo- boxing was in the Olympics. And I was like, wait a minute, where did that come from? You know, so it'd be, uh, and then Clint Eastwood makes the movie and all, you know, all that. But, you know, it, it's, that would be very interesting. So, uh, well, if we haven't scared you off, hopefully I have you on again to, uh, to discuss that. Um, uh, Cassie, what's next for you? Yeah, so I'm an independent producer, but I absolutely love working with Raw. So I was just working with Tim on that boxing documentary that he was mentioning. Um, And then I'm currently working on a three-part Netflix documentary series. Okay, that you cannot name at the moment. So uh, that's, that's, but that's okay. Not yet. Okay, well, maybe (laughs) we'll hopefully have you on again. And then uh, Jamie, how about you? Uh, Yeah, I'm not working with Raw. Currently, it doesn't good raw stuff um prior to to woodstock before moving out to new york but i am in the last uh, we're two weeks technically two weeks from picture lock on a feature length doc um about uh, a scandal um but i don't think i can say any more about it at the moment because i don't think it's been officially launched so to err on the side of caution uh, i won't say any more but that's coming out in the next few months Okay, so we've got three projects that we hopefully can have you guys back on again to to discuss, uh, even if it's individually. So uh, thank you again, uh, Cassie Thornton, Jamie Crawford, and Tim Wardle, the acclaimed filmmakers behind Clusterfuck Woodstock 99, releasing on Netflix on August 3rd. So thanks again, guys. Really, really appreciate you coming on and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the film and highly recommend that our listeners and viewers go and check it out.
Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to give a shout out to Sam and Joe Graves at Intersound Audio in Eskrick, England in deepest, darkest Yorkshire. A big thanks to Nevin Apanovich, podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show. And finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas. You can reach out to us on YouTube, social media, or directly by going to our website, www.factualamerica.com, and clicking on the Get In Touch link. And as always, please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.